1: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Ted Joya to discuss the birth of jazz in New Orleans. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll I'm your host Nate Wilcox And today Ted Joya returns to discuss The history of jazz Ted, welcome
2: Hello Nathan, thanks for having me
0: Sure, so this is the third edition of this book Which I I read a long while back And really enjoyed reading again
2: Well thank you And and is uh, any history book uh, needs if it's about a vibrant, alive subject, it needs to be updated. There are some history books that don't need to be updated, but I don't know if that's a good thing. That tells you often that the <laughs> subject they're dealing with is, uh, has, has stopped evolving and changing. And fortunately, uh, it's not true with jazz. So I had the responsibility of updating the book for a third edition, but it's a pleasant responsibility because it reminded me of how much changes in the jazz world and how many new things are still happening.
0: Yeah, it's been a pretty vibrant decade for jazz, I'd have to say. But I want to take you all the way back to the beginning of the book and the history and even prehistory of jazz, which starts with one place. We have some pretty good theories about who was the first jazz player, but we definitely know where it came from.
2: There's general agreement that jazz came out of New Orleans. There was a period long ago where people disputed that, but it's actually – been many decades since I've encountered anybody who has argued that. I mean, there was a time when the Soviet Union would tell you that jazz originated in Siberia or something like that. But uh, New Orleans is the time and place. But in fact, we still know scandalously little about the origins of jazz. And it's a good reminder that even in modern times, very key aspects of music history are shrouded in mystery. And and the origin of jazz is one of those. So we can put it uh, to New Orleans somewhere around 1900. But beyond that, there's a lot of ambiguity.
0: And and one thing that you zero in on, or a quote I want to highlight, is that you discuss an ability of African performance arts to transform the European tradition of composition while assimilating some of its elements and this is perhaps the most striking and powerful evolutionary force in the history of modern music. Definitely dominated the 20th century, not just in America but worldwide. And jazz—I mean, jazz was preceded by ragtime, which, which is a product of the same forces, and the blues, which is a product of also these same forces. Both of those are native, are forms native to America that evolved right here in America, right just ahead of jazz, but jazz is the one that really blew the doors wide open in the 1920s.
2: Well, each of those, there's a story behind them. And if we, and if we had time, we could talk about ragtime, which was a, a form of piano music primarily that uh, took off in the 1890s. Uh, and it involved intense syncopation, uh, and was it was a craze. It was a trend. It was a fad. People were excited about ragtime. We're told that the Maple Leaf rag sold a million copies in sheet music, which is an extraordinary thing, not just for the numbers, but also because it's an extremely difficult work. It's hard to imagine there were a million people in the United States that could play it. Uh, so the ragtime phenomena happened first, and it's most important for... The rhythmic intensity of the music. Like I say, syncopation, which is when the emphasis comes between the beats in the music, it has a very disruptive feel to it. And when you hear music with lots of syncopation, uh, it, it might make you sound, um, it might make you feel jittery or nervous. Uh, but but the rhythmic excitement of it is undeniable. So ragtime did that. But ragtime was composed music; it wasn't improvised like jazz. It was all written down. And then you had the blues which was the exact opposite. It wasn't written down for a long time. It was more of a folk music. And it often flourished in the most remote communities in America. When I was researching the history of the blues, it seemed the more remote you were from the big city, the more likely blues would flourish in your community. So take Mississippi, which was the epicenter of the blues revolution. That Mississippi at that time had the fewest number of homes with electricity the fewest number of telephones the fewest number of automobiles per capita uh the fewest number of radios of any state in the united states it's no coincidence that the blues started there because it was essentially a folk music preserving many traditions from africa so those are the two big predecessors and then jazz emerges and jazz combines both it has these syncopated rhythms of ragtime the bent blues notes and and folk tradition of uh, the blues music, and also assimilated other things as well. And this is the most amazing thing at all about jazz. It seemed to assimilate anything it came into contact with. So we could learn things from March music, the brass bands of New Orleans, the opera music in the opera houses of New Orleans, the popular songs, almost anything a jazz musician heard back then, they could make it their own. And so all of a sudden we have this futuristic kind of music called jazz that emerges around the year 1900, more or less. And it's hard to say, is it folk music? Is it art music? Is it a traditional music? Is it a futuristic music? And those are difficult questions to answer because the answer to each of them is yes and more. Jazz was all those things. And probably was really the first example of a music that started out as a folk music and now developed these extraordinary artistic aspirations as well.
0: And let's go a little further back and talk about New Orleans and the cultural blend that made New Orleans so unique and I mean, I've always known that New Orleans was a special city anytime an American goes to new orleans it's it's almost like going to a foreign country. It's one of maybe three four cities in the u s that feels unique and reading the works of your works, obviously, but also the work of Ned Sublet, who's really clarified the details of the unique blend that went in to making New Orleans such a hotbed of unique musical innovation in America. What are some of the key ingredients in that gumbo?
2: Well, you know, Nathan, we've talked about this in other circumstances. You know, when I wrote my book, Music of Subversive History, I looked particularly at the question of why do new musical styles emerge? And what is the um, best setting for that? What is the context in which musical innovation happens? And what I've learned increasingly over the years is that the best cities for innovation are places where there's diverse populations with different traditions mixing together in close proximity. And so it tends to be port cities or border cities, places on the border between areas, or cities where immigrants congregate. Uh, and the interesting thing is jazz was the first one of these I studied, but later when I studied you know, opera, the madrigal, the troubadour songs of, of the late medieval period, all the way to the birth of, of lyric poetry in ancient Greece, I found it was always the same formula. It's a port city. Generally, it's on a, a body of water used for commerce. Diverse populations are there, and they create this environment of give and take where people are – Exchanging their own musical traditions in a way that, that creates an attitude of openness. And so if you wanted to ask what was the most diverse city in the United States in 1900, the answer may very well have been New Orleans. Because you had, first of all, the Spanish tradition of the Spanish settlers that had been under French rule, um, came to the United States as part of the Louisiana Purchase. You had immigration from... The Caribbean, because there was political upheavals in the Caribbean and people escaped to New Orleans. You obviously had the the the, the, the African-American slaves there. Uh, and then you had all the commerce that was going up and down the Mississippi, which used New Orleans as sort of a, of a gateway or entry point. And so here we have the most diverse city in the United States in 1900, maybe even the most diverse city in the world then. We shouldn't be surprised that that's where jazz took off. Because that's always been the recipe. It probably always will be the recipe. And so, New Orleans uh, was the the epicenter of the jazz revolution in a way that, you know, Cincinnati or Detroit or, you know, whatever would not have been.
0: And I want to play something. This is a. 19th century composition by a New Orleanian composer, and forgive me if I mispronounce his name. Maybe you can help me. Basil Barres is my stab at that. That's
2: right. Well, this is a this is a fast, If it's the work I think you're going to play, it's a very fascinating work.
0: Yeah, Los Campanias. Yeah. And yes. and tell us a little bit about this one.
2: Well, he was the you know he was the first African American composer, I believe, to get a copyrighted work. And you got to realize this is 50 years before jazz emerged, and most of his compositions are very much in imitation of European models. But this piece you're going to play was something he never published during his lifetime, and it, it looks forward to the sort of the habanero rhythm that would show up in jazz or the St. Louis blues – Uh, And and it's just got a completely different perspective, and it it gives you a sense that even in New Orleans at this early stage before jazz was invented, you had African-American composers who had a different soundscape, a different arsenal of musical composition tools at their disposal. Uh, And and this this song is still very uh, poorly known. Not many people, even music scholars, know about this composition, but back when it was written, nobody knew about it because it wasn't published.
0: And so let's hear it. This is Basile Perez and Los Campanillas. And that was Los Companillas by Basilio Beras. and that's a song that incorporates, you mentioned the habanero rhythm of Cuba, which, as Ned Sublette has told us, the Cubans had more, more polyrhythms. They, they, that's where slaves from Southern Africa tended to congregate, and they were, like in New Orleans, they were allowed to keep their drums. New Orleans was the only city in the U.S. where enslaved peoples were allowed to play drums, and they did it in a place called Congo Square, and... The fact that New Orleans then becomes an internal migration point for slaves from Virginia and North Carolina, you get these African Americans coming to New Orleans who possibly had more of an Islamic or Northern African tradition, you know, things like swing and the blue notes, et cetera. So this melting pot is just in a fever. And one of the key things that happens around this time, because of the tragedy of Jim Crow, when when segregation is brutally imposed after the end of Reconstruction, is that there's a class of Creoles of color in New Orleans. And these are people who are descendants from French and Spanish colonialists and their slaves. And these Creoles had always considered themselves above and separate from black Americans. And legally, suddenly they were forced to be recognized only as as Black Americans. And that forced this very educated cast who had extensive European musical training to mix and mingle and perform in the same places as these American descendants of slaves. Um, just fascinating stuff and not something I'd, I'd picked up on before, but people like Jolly Mor- Roll Morton come from this cast and bring a lot to the table. People
2: have no idea how complex the uh, racial constitution of early jazz is and it, once again it gets to the complexity of of new orleans and the population in new orleans and you had a group they often called creoles now what do we mean by creoles well people have different ways of defining the word creole but in the context of early jazz a uh, creole was someone who had mixed ancestry so probably one of your ancestors was, a, was an African slave, and another one might have been uh, you know, a French slave owner. And so your life was complicated, and eventually the government tried to determine, to try to tell you what your racial heritage was. Uh, uh, but for the most part, uh, many of these creoles of color could pass as white. And that obviously gave them opportunities that they just couldn't have if, if they stayed within the black community. So you have um, a whole group of early jazz musicians who are these creoles of color, like, like Ory or Jelly Roll Morton. Uh, they often prided themselves on their formal music training. They often consciously aligned themselves more with the European tradition because this uh the 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 part of their own status seeking they felt enhanced by this and i'll be honest even today in the jazz world you see people that are that are striving to to do jazz symphonies or whatever with the idea that somehow this imposes some some respectability so you have that going on and these people were playing jazz at a very early stage but then you have a, a a group of 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 um Clear descendants of African slaves, with with no obvious European ancestry, who are playing uh, a very exciting dance music known as jazz. Generally, these people are less interested in imitating what's happening at the opera house, but even these musicians can learn and assimilate all sorts of styles. And you put these people in proximity with each other, with all the other musical traditions happening in New Orleans, of which there, are, you know, every culture there had its own musical traditions. And it creates something very messy for a music historian. As a music historian, I want to find something pure and unadulterated and a clear example of this and a clear example of that. In fact, as soon as you start probing into the early history of jazz, you don't have that clarity. But some things jumped to the forefront: the the rhythmic energy, the syncopations, the bent notes from the blues, the brass band instruments, the horns, uh, the preponderance of, of of dance rhythms and dance beats, the use of jazz to entertain. All these things jumped to the forefront, um, but they they mix and morph in extraordinary ways into our own benefit. Because this is what makes jazz so exciting. If it all followed just one or two rules, it wouldn't be anywhere near as exciting as it is. Uh, in actual history, where it followed many rules imposed by many people.
0: And in your discussion of these African influences, you, you identify four traits that make African music notable, and with the superposition that the most special thing about African music is is the incredible mastery of rhythm and, and, and the informal scholarship of polyrhythms poly that had been going on there for a long time. and But there's four other traits that you identify. One is that it transcends the fundamental Western separation of audience from artists. The second one is it integrates performance into social fabric and everyday life. The third one is this cross-fertilization of music and dance. In fact, it was often considered that If you knew how to dance to a music, that meant you understood the music in this tradition. And then the fourth one is focus on sounds rather than notes. And you mentioned blue notes, but tell us a little bit about that. And what was so special about that? And why did that stop people like W.C. Handy in their tracks the first time they heard it?
2: If you ask me what was the single most important innovation in music in the 20th century, that's a hard question to answer, but I would say it's the bent blues note because this defied thousands of years of Western music. There's a notion of Western music that goes back to Pythagoras in ancient Greece that you always play in tune and every note is discrete. So if I play, you know, I'm sitting at my piano right now. So if I play a C, that's always a C. If I play an F sharp, the F sharp is always an F sharp. If I play a B flat, the B flat is always a B flat. And you don't mess with those things. In fact, you go to a, a concert at the symphony. What's the first thing the musicians do? They tune up. Everyone wants to play in tune. Well, the blues showed up, and the blues musicians didn't do that. They bent the note. And I can't emulate it on the piano. The best way of emulating on the piano is this little grace note where I slide off a note. So I go like this. But if you have a horn player, they can actually well even between those pitches or they can bend a note so that it slides into the next one. Um, and this broke the, the most basic rule of Western music. And the reason this happened was because this whole Pythagorean, Pythagorean notion that you always played in tune and you didn't bend notes, that, that idea never spread to Africa. In Africa, they used music as a, built on sounds, not on notes. And as soon as you view music as sounds, there's a whole world of possibilities open to you that you lose when you view music simply as notes. This is a gross simplification. but You could even make the claim that Western music evolved based on what you could write down on music paper. You can't. The spaces between the notes you can't write down. So, or at least not in conventional notation. So they got eliminated. The blues brought this back, and that bent blues note, as simple as it is, changed everything. Soon you had country singers were bending notes, pop singers were bending notes, Uh, obviously from the blues it went into jazz. Even today if you watch some singing competition show on TV like American Idol, I guarantee you that at a certain point in that song, the singer is going to begin bending notes or wavering between tones. We take it for granted now. Uh, but it came out of the blues. And the, and the interesting thing is very few people knew about this in the year 1900s. Now, W.C. Handy is called the father of the blues, but he didn't know about the blues until a short while later when he was in Mississippi. And here's the remarkable thing. Somehow the jazz musicians in New Orleans knew about those blues notes before anyone in Chicago or New York, at least judging by the music history books. Somehow this country sound... Uh, from the blues bands was picked up by jazz musicians very early on. So it's it's pretty safe to say that even the earliest jazz performers were bending notes in a way that they had learned from blues players uh, long before anyone in the Northeast figured this
3: out.
0: And now I want to risk anachronism here, because I'm going to play a Charlie Patton recording from the late 20s. But Charlie was an older guy. He was from the Delta. And it's thought that his style is closer to the beginnings of the blues than many people who recorded before him. So let's hear Charlie Patton doing yeah, pony blues. Like, <laughs>
3: like, black woman, don't put your hand on
0: And that was Charlie Patton's Pony Blues. And, you know, from reading your subversive history of music, it's really been burned in my head that powerful musical innovation is dangerous and hard to capture. And to me, it used to be this just aching tragedy that... We didn't know exactly who was the first blues musician or what were the first blues songs and we never had a recording of Buddy Bolden, the first jazz artist. But now I kind of understand this stuff is so volatile and dangerous. Maybe we just never were intended to put lightning in a bottle like that. Well,
2: these early blues recordings, uh, such as the Charlie Patton one you just played, uh, are, are, are extraordinary revelations of a whole different way of looking at music. And obviously, uh, if you're a trained musician, the first thing you notice is the bent notes. The, sometimes the song forms of these early blues break every rule. A you know, classic example is John Lee Hooker. You know, you, One of the first things you're taught when you go into blues in music school now is it's 12 bars long. Each bar has four beats. So you do the math... That's 48 beats to the form, 12-bar blues. But you listen to John John Lee Hooker, and he would play a a 13-bar blues or an 11-bar blues or an 11.5-bar blues. And every time he played it, uh, the the duration of the form changed. Now You're not allowed to do this in Western music. But among early blues musicians, you'll often see them take extraordinary liberties with the form. They'll take liberties, obviously, with the bending of the notes, the harmonies are really more collections of sound. A good example is Sun House, a contemporary in front of Charlie Patton. You know, he'll be playing stuff, and if I had to analyze it for a musicologist, I would say, well, you know, you can call that a dominant chord if you want, but it's it's really just sort of a sound he's got going there that he's not thinking in terms of chords. So this was this was liberating, but it was also liberating in terms of shaking up social norms. Charlie Patton, by no coincidence, was also the first – musician to uh, – in the, in the Deep South, black musician to record a song criticizing a public official. He did a song criticizing the sheriff at a point in time where you, you risk your life putting those criticisms out there. So it, it just – it's extraordinary music that breaks every rule. Uh, the fact that it became popular – May seem surprising, but in a way, you've got to imagine people who heard that music in the 20s must have found it tremendously liberating. We've become used to many of these blues sounds. But if you heard a record like that, if you're sitting in, in um, Sioux City, Iowa, or Salt Lake City, or whatever, Reno, Nevada, in 1925, and you hear one of these early blues recordings, and you understood what was going on in those recordings, it would have shaken you up.
0: Yeah. And that's the evidence we have from many, many musicians, both black and white people like W.C. Handy and Ma Rainey, white musicians like Big Speederbeck and Bing Crosby, who just talk about being staggered the first time they heard the rules. They knew oh, the blues. I mean, they knew this was breaking the rules and the power was immediate and awesome. And And that kind of leads us to another figure whose power was immediate and awesome. And that's the late, great, legendary Buddy Bolden, who many think now is the first jazz musician. And this is a guy who's coming out of the brass band tradition in New Orleans, you know, sort of a descendant of John Philip Sousa in a way, and also the second line tradition of marching to funerals. But this is the guy who brings blues elements by the common oral history tradition. This is the guy who was really the leader in bringing these blues elements into this brass band music. But his most notable trait was probably the sheer volume of his attack.
2: It's always fascinating to ask who is the inventor? Who is the first person? Who created this? Uh, And... One of the things I try to point out to people is it's surprising in music how little we know about this. And when I tell people the first jazz musician was Buddy Bolden, but we really can only guess what he sounded like, they're amazed. But in fact, I think you could do a test if you got these music professors in a room and say, What was the first sonata? What was the first symphony? What was the first fugue? Yeah, you'd have they would they would the debates would be endless. And this is because uh, and 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 you 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 know my my philosophy of music. This is because these sounds, when they first come out, are so at the outside the boundaries of the normal. They're so disruptive. They're so subversive. They're not covered in the daily newspaper. You know, one of the most disappointing things I found was when I was writing my book on Delta blues. I went out into the South and I went to the old newspaper archives from 1910, 1915, 1920, trying to find any mention in the newspaper of the blues. Here I am, I read newspapers in Mississippi at the point when blues is just the most revolutionary thing happening in that state. It's not covered in the newspaper. So jazz is the same way. Buddy Bolden was the first jazz musician. I feel that's true. Can you prove it conclusively with a Euclidean proof? I don't know about it, but I feel Buddy Bolden was the first jazz musician. Enough of the people who were around back then said that. Probably sometime around 1900, he's playing this very exciting music. Clearly, it's dance music. Clearly, it uses these horns. You know, he played cornet, so it's going to have the trombone, the cornet, the clarinet. It's going to have the classic jazz instruments. Clearly, he's using these syncopated rhythms that come out of ragtime. He's obviously bending the notes uh, the way blues musicians do. Uh, he probably got some stuff from gospel and religious music. At least, judging by what people tell us, he got some of his best musical ideas at church. And he also and let's not minimize this. He also sang lyrics to his songs. And, and we know that, that you, <laughs> if you sang these lyrics, you often got arrested. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, his most famous song. Some people call it uh, Buddy Bolden Blues or Funky Bud, It's got a variety of names. And it, he probably changed the lyrics a little bit each time he sang it. And it was a, uh, a song of satire, dark humor, and political criticism. And so you got all these rolled into one, uh, this amazing musician. Now, here's the tragedy. He never made a record, or if he did, it's been lost. So we can merely speculate on what this actually sounded like. Uh, and the people that that did hear him, they'll tell us little bits and pieces. You know, for example, the thing you mentioned, everybody agreed on how how loudly he played. You know, he, clearly he was a loud musician. We also know uh, some of the places he played were very rowdy. People got murdered there. So uh, you put it all together. And I always tell people, you think jazz is respectable now because it gets played at Carnegie Hall or taught at Juilliard. It's always a good reminder to look at at the early origins of this music, which had no desire to be respectable. It had no desire to get into Carnegie Hall. It was music to entertain, incite, disrupt, subvert, uh, and challenge authority figures. Uh, and and anyone who cares about jazz, should try to preserve at least a few of those, uh, in the music's tradition. Because hey, that's that's what we came out of.
0: Absolutely, and let's take a quick break from our sponsor and talk about some of the other traditions that get incorporated into this rapidly expanding current of jazz. And so you mentioned earlier that some people had tried to argue for a long time that jazz came from places other than new orleans and And one of the people that's most often named and as a potential alternative first jazz artist to record is this guy in New York who's coming out of a very different tradition. He's playing in brass bands or he's putting brass bands together. He's also putting banjo orchestras together. he's playing for. Uh, the most popular dance teachers in the country, the castles, teaching people the foxtrot and everything else. I'm talking about James Reese Europe and his stuff, like he does a version of W.C. Handy's Memphis Blues that's recorded. It's similar, but it's different. Why is James Reese Europe and the New York sort of vaudeville one step down, from, not down from minstrelsy, but in the minstrelsy tradition in a way, because it's part of that vaudeville American showbiz tradition that has been dominated by minstrelsy, uh, which is, of course, the blackface tradition, the Stephen Foster tradition, the Jim Crow, Old Black Joe tradition. That's dominated American popular music from the 1840s all the way up to the time we're talking about, 1900. Why is James Reese Europe not considered, not part of this conversation?
2: Well, as you get into the musical innovations that came out of black culture in the early 20th century. There are many different gradations and variations of it. One of the problems that we have is we always want labels. We want to attach labels to each of these, but the labels didn't even exist back then. Uh, You know, if you'd asked James Reese Europe in 1910 whether he played jazz, he wouldn't even have known what that question was. Uh, The word jazz wouldn't have been on his radar screen then. Oh uh, and and so as we as we deal with each of these people we need to deal with them on their own terms so we and I'll just mention some names scott joplin the most important ragtime composer uh, in the history of american music but even joplin would have complained about being called a ragtime composer he wanted to write opera he wanted to write concert works you know when he got a little bit of money he started his own opera company and toured in the south can you imagine what it was like 120 130 years ago as a black man touring in the south with your own opera company but still let's let's try to attach a label we'll call Joplin a ragtime composer and, and i think that's that's valid because our notion of what ragtime is is, is largely based on hearing his music then you have W.C. Handy, who's called the father of the blues. But he started wanting to, to write march music like John Philip Sousa, and he only discovered the blues you know, fairly late in his development, although he wrote some blues songs that were huge sellers. Uh, but even there, you've got to place him. He, you can't really call him a jazz musician. He's hardly even a recording artist. You know, Go, go try to find actual recordings of W.C. Handy playing. You know, so it's a, And then you've got within the blues, you've got the traditional blues players, like Charlie Patton, who we've heard, of. and then you've got the, the sort of these more city-oriented female blues singers we call classic blues singers, you know, like Bessie Smith or Ma Rainey, but they're much more affiliated with the with the New York popular song tradition. And then you've got James Reese Europe, who's very difficult to place because he's doing some music, and it draws obviously on the march tradition. It clearly draws heavily on ragtime and syncopations, uh, and also he's very important for. For bringing a uh, African American orchestra over to Europe uh, uh, during World War I and introducing uh, Europeans to black music there too, so each of these are very important in their own way, and the distinctions may seem subtle. Uh, but you know, I listen to James Reese Europe, and I and I hear march band tradition, I hear some popular music tradition, I hear a ragtime tradition, uh, but is it jazz or is it not jazz? And like I say, to me, it's less important. To argue over these definitions, because these were debates that even the people we're talking about might not have understood. The, 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 the important thing is try to go back and listen to that music with fresh ears and try to understand everybody on their own terms. So, you're, so this is the, the key thing about James Reese Europe. Uh, he's an important figure, but we probably shouldn't try to reduce him to the jazz tradition because in many ways he did things outside it and beyond it, which which maybe enhances importance rather than than trying to compare him to, let's say, Louis Armstrong or Buddy
0: Bolton. Let's go ahead and hear a little bit of James Reese Europe. This is James Reese Europe doing W.C. Handy's Memphis Blues. was James Reese Europe's Memphis Blues. And there's uh, what what effectively is a diaspora of New Orleanian musicians, because New Orleans is a city in decline, as you point out. In, the 18, in 1850, this is one of the biggest and most thriving cities in the US, because it's the port of the Gulf of Mexico, also the Mississippi. So it connects, you know, Ohio to Cuba. But by 1900 the railroads have come along and stolen a lot of New Orleans thunder also it's a pestilential city this is the home of the yellow fever and and you know whenever you go to New Orleans and you get one of these walking tour history of jazz or something they'll tell you when they talk about the second line funeral tradition that people were dying early and often in this town and so there was a big incentive to leave and go other places and so this is kind of how this process, this stuff gets spread out. And so that the word jazz shows up in newspapers in San Francisco long before the music is recorded on wax. And people in Chicago are hearing something that they call jazz. And so there's a lot of people, you know, even though we're reasonably confident Buddy Bolden around 1900 was the first jazz player. But by, say, 1915, there's all kinds of people playing jazz and they're playing it all over the country. Tell us about some of these characters like Jolly Roll Roll Morton or Nick LaRocca or Freddie Keppard and and their place in the picture.
2: Well, the first thing I've got to say is that the geography of American music makes absolutely no sense. and, and we should know that because we go to a ball game, we sing the Star-Spangled Banner, and then someone tells us, "Well, that was an English drinking tune." How did an English drinking tune become our national anthem? You know? And uh, "My Country Tis of you. Well, that's just "God Save the Queen." And, and the more you dig into American music, none of it makes sense. You know, people will tell you that Stephen Foster was the greatest composer of Southern songs, but he spent almost none of his life in the South. He spent a few days in the South, and then you get to jazz. And the geography of jazz, well, it sounds simple. The music started in New Orleans and you have this New Orleans style, but then it started to move. And, and when I teach this, it's complicated to people because I, what, what the first thing you find when you teach students New Orleans jazz, almost every record, record I play for them was recorded in Chicago. And students will little Ted, how come you call it New Orleans jazz if every one of these records is made in Chicago? And I have to explain, well, New Orleans was the birthplace of jazz, but those musicians were often anxious to get out of that city as fast as possible. And that's the whole tragedy of New Orleans music. I mean, I could, if we had, I could spend an hour just talking about all the bad things that New Orleans has done to destroy its own musical traditions, even to what they're doing with Buddy Bolton's house in the current day or the way they've torn down every bloody jazz monument in the city and leave other ones in disrepair. But let's just look at the question you asked me. Why did jazz travel? It was because these musicians jumped at the chance to leave town. So at a very early stage, jazz starts showing up everywhere. Well, the obvious place is Chicago because there's a lot of work for musicians in Chicago. So King Oliver, one of the greatest New Orleans jazz musicians, moves up to Chicago. And then he sends for his protege, Louis Armstrong. So William Armstrong, long before William Armstrong's famous, he's already left New Orleans, and and then you have pretty much everybody else, and and then the strange thing is all these jazz musicians that end up in California, and this is a very early stage in the development. You know, Jelly Roll Morton is out there, and Kid Ory is out there, King Oliver was out there, and people want to know why did. Jazz positions go to California. It's nowhere near New Orleans, and, and it's just – the answer is, is as banal and simple as possible. There was a train line. Very early stage, the, one of the first uh, transnational train lines went from New Orleans to California. And actually, if you look at the whole – we don't have time for this, but if you look at the whole history of African-American music, a lot of it was determined by train lines. That they've shown that if you look at the musicians in a certain part of New Orleans, and then you locate the nearest train station to where they were born, and the most common destination of trains from that particular station, <laughs> that explains a lot of the migration of American music. <laughs> why, so, why someone ended up in Detroit, another one in the West Coast, another one in Chicago. So the, the, but the most important thing to understand is that we've got these neat little boxes called New Orleans Jazz or Chicago Jazz, but the reality was jazz traveled all over quickly, much faster than our ability to document it or understand it. Even at a stage when few people understood what jazz was, few people understood what that word meant, the music had already started impacting things all over the United States and even outside of the United States, because Joey Roll Morton went up to Canada, maybe up to Alaska, who knows? So this this music started traveling even before people understood what it was all about.
0: And you bring up Jolly, Jolly Roll Morton, and this is a guy who claimed, who insisted that he was the inventor of jazz, that he was the father of jazz. And a lot of these claims are manifestly untrue, and yet he's possibly one of our best sources for the history of jazz, and he's an absolutely critical jazz performer and songwriter.
2: Well, I Jolly Roll Morton's a hero of mine. In fact, when I was learning about jazz, one of the very first jazz musicians I learned about was Jelly Roll Morton. And I got piano music and tried to learn to play. I'm, I'm like still in high school at this point. It was pure happenstance. But I'd always developed this affection for Jelly Roll Morton, who uh, grew up in New Orleans around the time jazz was starting and traveled all over the place and did a few classic recordings in the 1920s while he was in Chicago Then for the most part was forgotten, and finally right before the end of his life, in the early 40s, he became famous again, and mostly just because he would write letters to the editor, like of these jazz magazines, and he would say, I invented jazz. I was the originator of jazz. I created jazz. And he was able to parlay this notoriety. Uh, into getting uh, the great music researcher Alan Lomax to do a series of recordings sponsored by the u s government recording Jelly Roll Morton talking about his life and playing piano and and here 's the sad thing is a lot of people treat Jelly Roll Morton as a joke because he was he was a man who boasted uh, and he exaggerated. Uh, and and that and when he shows up in pop culture, you know, like there was a musical Jelly's Last Jam, or whenever he shows up in pop culture, some sort of stereotype. And it's easy to laugh at him and make a stereotype because he was probably also a pimp, he was a pull sharp, uh, he probably was a little bit of a con man. Uh, you, you know, he 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 made money however he could, and he had a lot of skills. Some of them of dubious legality, and he bragged a lot. So it's easy to make him into a comic figure. But make no mistake, he was one of the most significant American composers of the 20th century. He did extraordinary things. He gave us some of the greatest jazz recordings of the 1920s. And he had some of the most brilliant insights on music to this day. And if you listen to those recordings Alan Lomax made, you understand Jelly Roll Morton might have been the first person in the United States to think about jazz and African-American music in a very theoretical musicology-oriented way. He had concepts. He had the th- theories of how the music should sound, what you can do, what you can't do. And you can argue endlessly, but there was nobody else back then who was thinking about that music in such an advanced way as Roll Morton. So he's important to me, and one of the things I feel I need to do as a jazz historian is to reclaim his seriousness as a figure— uh, in American music, and not just some uh, bragging pimp who went around the country with a revolver and a flashy wardrobe, because he was much more than that.
0: Absolutely. And let's hear him playing for Alec, Alan Lomax of the Library of Congress. And this is a version of Maple Leaf Rag by Scott Joplin. And Jelly and Roll has just played a ragtime version of this song. And now he's going to show Alan Lomax and us the jazz version of Maple Leaf Rag. doing a demo version of a jazz version of Maple Leaf Rag for Alan Lomax at the Library of Congress. And yeah, my first introduction to Jelly Roll Morton was reading an R. Crumb comic book uh, that basically takes the Robert Johnson crossroads myth and and puts it to Jelly Roll Morton and and which apparently is true. Like this is something that he a story he told on himself that you know he had uh I believe it was his stepmother maybe had sold his soul to the devil at a young age and and that never ends well as we know. So yeah, when I came across uh those Alan Lomax recordings, that was just an utter revelation and a massive musical education. And yeah, Jolly Roll Morton, major league figure. Do not sleep on this guy. Definitely worth a listen if you're at all interested in 20s jazz or American music, period. Just some great, great stuff. And there's another guy who scored some points, who, who had some major accomplishments. You, you recognize he was a gifted clarinetist. And he's the guy who makes the first jazz record. And he's a white guy. And he also claimed and insisted that he, or at least white people, were the first jazz musicians. I'm talking about Nick LaRocca. Talk about him and the uh, dubiously named original Dixieland jazz. Um,
2: Well, as I mentioned, nothing in jazz history really makes much sense. And so we have all sorts of bizarre things. And one of the strangest is the first jazz records were made by a white band, the original Dixieland jazz band. And they went up north. They caused a sensation. Uh, they made some recordings that, that got a lot of notoriety. At the, at the time, people considered them uh, novelty records. You know, some of them are novelty records. They're making, the, they're making uh, imitations of barnyard animals on their instruments and things like that. Uh, but these records were the first jazz records. And so as a jazz historian, you're, you're faced with the anomaly that this clearly... Uh, African American musical art form uh, gets introduced to the American consciousness by a white band. And so let's you know, trying to parse through that is complex. I think one of the things you've always got to look at is 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 the the positive side of any of these things is that this music was so powerful, everybody wanted to imitate it. And so, at a very early stage, a, a number of people are jumping on the jazz bandwagon, uh, and that—that's testimony to the the, the the power of the vision there. Uh, and and Nick LaRocca and and that whole band is actually it's actually a pretty good band. I mean, this is so you can you can say well these guys are a bunch of posers. but in fact I think I think that band is much better than it's often getting credit for. Here's the problem though: Nick and his buddies wanted to 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 make these grand claims about how they originated or invented jazz. So they're just like Jelly Roll Morton. And this has all happened. There's a certain point where jazz is now being treated as important music. And everybody wants to put their claim to it. Uh, my thought is be sympathetic to these individuals. They're trying to get a dose of, of fame. Uh, but Nick and the original Dixieland jazz band overstepped. So give them credit for what they did. Give them credit for being, you know, actually a pretty good jazz band. But no, no, they weren't the originators of it. Uh, they were disseminators. And, but, but even disseminators played a very important role at that juncture in history.
0: Another figure I want to bring up is a guy named Freddie Keppard, and this is he was, an, he was an heir to Buddy Bolden's tradition, another uh, cornet and trumpet player, but he was somebody who could have, would have, should have been the first jazz musician to record, but he didn't want to. Why was that?
2: Well, the, the story they tell about Freddie, and it's, it's, an, it's a funny story, but the true one is he had an opportunity to record, uh, but he didn't want it because he thought people would steal his stuff. You know, he had stuff he could do on the horn. He didn't want anyone. And this is legit because you know how much music plagiarism takes place even now. I mean, there are probably more money's made on music plagiarism lawsuits now than from actually recordings. Um, so Kepard was was one of the few people that knew how to play jazz at a point when almost nobody had that knowledge. And he's saying, well, you know, if I put it on record, everyone's going to imitate what I do, and they'll steal my stuff. And he eventually did recordings, but by then, you know, the, the, he was no longer the 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 one and only, the sole innovator. It's always difficult in in hindsight to say how much more important would he have been, or what would he we have known if he'd recorded earlier. Um, but this kid, the, the, the whole question of who was doing what in New Orleans in 1900, 1905, 1910, and who was the best. Horn player, boy, you get experts in a room and they'll argue endlessly. But there will be people that will tell you that Freddie was the king, should have been the king, should have would have coulda. Have. Uh, but the fact is, he had his opportunity and he let it pass him by.
0: And 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 that will happen. And you know, one thing that fascinates me about learning more about the early period of jazz is this. You know, we call the 1920s the jazz age. And yet Louis Armstrong doesn't record, um, you know, the Hot Fives and Hot Sevens until really late in the decade. And the things that were called jazz at that time, obviously, we discussed the the, the OJDB, um, but there's a lot of records out there that at the time were seen as jazz. Everybody who heard him, ah, that's jazz. It's fast, it's brassy, it's hot, it's syncopated, maybe it's a little bluesy, but as we look back on it, we're kind of hard pressed to define them as jazz, and, and a lot of times the line that we use retrospectively is they're not improvised. Why is improvisation considered so central to the jazz tradition, and when did it get added to the mix?
2: Well, I think it was there from the start. I think the thing that distinguished the early jazz performers is they did make it up as they went along. I told you that you know Buddy Bolden had this song he sang. It was his trademark song, but those lyrics probably were different from Night to Night. I'm almost certain that Buddy Bolden's... Uh, what he played on the horn would be very different from Night to Night. And that was part of the essence and ethos of jazz. You even had Jelly Roll Morton showing how he played Maple Leaf Rag, and he made a point that he played it differently from what was written down on the page. So there's this ethos of spontaneity in jazz... Uh, and uh, once again, jazz experts will argue endlessly about this, but I believe improvisation is essential to jazz. If you don't have improvisation, it might sound jazzy, but it's not real jazz. So that's where you have these strange cases of this, this concert jazz music in the 1920s, uh, some of it recorded by the Paul Whiteman band. A lot of these, these uh, arrangements, even what sounds like solos, were written out. And I think that that undermines the whole contribution to the music. You know, and I feel very strongly about this. I believe jazz is not just a style of music. It's a way of life. And I'm always telling my wife, you know, the reason I make decisions so quickly and I do these things very spontaneously, is that's my ethos. I'm a jazz, I'm a jazz person. And, and the whole essence of being a jazz person is you live in the moment. And that's sometimes it's good. Sometimes that's bad. Sometimes it's beautiful. Sometimes it's ugly. And all, this is controversial. Also, I also believe this is why so many jazz musicians have addiction problems, because if you live in the moment, you know, you're not planning on how to reinvest your 401k or retirement. We, we live in the moment. You're seeking out intense experiences and to expect these people to seek out intense experiences in music and in no other aspect of their life that you're expecting too much from them. So to me, this is, this is the key part of jazz. And so the great jazz musicians of the 20s, to me, are the ones that understood that spontaneity. And then you get to someone like Louis Armstrong, who was the greatest living improviser of his era. And it's no coincidence that he was the guy that took jazz into the next era. He's the culmination of New Orleans jazz, in many ways the end point, because he, he lays the framework for everything to come. Uh, But still, that essence of improvisation, that spontaneity is there. It it defines the music. It always will define the music.
0: Well, cool. Ted, thanks so much. The book is The History of Jazz. It's on its third edition. A delightful read. I really enjoyed uh, going back to it. And we've just scratched the surface. So, again, you know, as your schedule allows, love to have you back anytime to talk jazz, blues, uh, your next book, anything. Thanks again, Ted.
2: Thank you for having me. You take care, Nate.
1: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at Podcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Stevie Chick to discuss Black Flag and the rise of hardcore punk. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Edward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park.